Hey, Heat Nation! Welcome back to Heaters Gonna Heat, part of the OTG Podcast Network. I'm your host, Kyle Russell, here to chat a little about our favorite NBA team, the Miami Heat, as they are about to begin their path to, hopefully, another NBA championship. So, the first two days of the play-in tournament have wrapped up, so at the very least, we have a bit of a clearer picture of who Miami's first-round opponent's gonna be. The Nets, after maybe letting the Cavs hang around a little bit too long in the game, took care of business nonetheless. Meanwhile, um, what wrapped up last night was the Atlanta Hawks smacking the living mess out of the Charlotte Hornets, setting up the Cavs versus Hawks Friday night, the winner of which will play the Miami Heat in the first round that will start Sunday at 1 p.m. So, bit of an early start, which, you know, that, that part kind of sucks. To, again, I always appreciate... The schedule helped there, Adam Silver. But I guess we should take this to mean that this, regardless of who Miami goes up against, this should be a, a rather dull, quick series. But before we get to the playoff talk, I actually wanted to first start with going over just an evaluation of the Miami Heat's 21-22 regular season since, you know, we have all that in the books now. So as known, uh, the Heat finished with a 53-29 and record, which got them first in the East in a year that... Going in, I would I imagine the expectations were a top four finish, just get home court in the first round. But as the season started to get along, it seemed like Miami actually might have something that could contend legitimately for the first seed. And then December happened. Uh, Bam goes down, needs surgery on his thumb. Jimmy Bra- uh, gets a tailbone bruise and breaks his butt. Uh, half the roster essentially goes down with injury. Uh, Deadman, that's right, had a knee sprain as well. Then you get through that, and then the other half of the roster, Duncan Robinson, Kyle Lowry, Tyler Hero, all start going into health and safety protocols. You get through that, and then something in Kyle Lowry, and start getting Bam back and Butler back, and then something personal happens in Lowry's life. So it is almost until, I want to say it was like late January, that we finally had, you know, somewhat semblance of a healthy core again. And yet through that all... The Heat managed to stay not only in the playoff hunt, but to still keep up with the upper part of the East, like hang around, you know, playoff range, top six seed, until they got healthy again. And then once they did, they took the first seed. And, you know, though there was though there was the march that was a little bit bad where, you know, they, they tried to reincorporate players that were getting healthy again in Morris and Oladipo. Uh, they course-corrected at the end, and then rattled off a season-high six straight wins after a season-high four straight losses to clinch the first seed. In doing so, while playing their best basketball, looking in playoff form. Overall, this is a team that unfortunately did slip out of the top 10 in offensive rating, finishing 12th in offensive rating at 113, but as is per usual for Miami, a top five defense fourth in defensive rating at 108.4, which combined gave the, made them sixth in net rating at 4.5. Also, as per usual Miami style, this is a team that liked to play at an extremely slow pace. Even the addition of Kyle Lowry ended up not doing much in terms of upping their pace, finishing 28th in the league. So, yeah, I bring that up because, like, if you look at a lot of their counting stats... Um, they're, they're, it's very rare that you're going to find them very high on counting stat type stuff just because at a slow pace you just naturally depress all the counting numbers 
due to less opportunities. Still, you can look to, at the pace as kind of an advantage in the sense that Miami was always, almost always able to dictate the pace of combat. Like, sure, sometimes they would get sped up a little bit, but it was still always controlled. Like, Miami was usually dragging the opponent more towards a slower pace than the other, than them being dragged to a faster pace. Which, that level of control is valuable come playoff time. The other thing that really stood out just over the course of the season was the, the consistency that this team never, like, the well, as we kind of mentioned already, the worst losing streak this this team had was a four-game losing streak. Outside of that, I think they had two or three three-game losing streaks. They never strung along, you know, a long, like, five, six-game losing streak, even during the December when it, it that seemed like a possibility. On the other hand, they never really went on the crazy long win streaks you would have expected as well. Like, I I had predicted that come March when they had a very home-friendly schedule that they would have been able to pick up some more wins and have like a really good win streak. That got derailed mainly because of what the other changes that they were trying to do incorporating Depot and Morris. But still, they were able to at least respond and have that the season-high win streak of six, which is not that impressive if you if you try to match that up against other other title contender win streaks that have been going on during the season, but that six game win streak came at the most opportune time right before the playoffs. Diving into the numbers a little bit more for the offensive end, like as I already mentioned, they they ended up outside of the top ten in offensive rating, finishing at twelfth, primarily due to again just that bad March with the the four game losing streak. Like, they were top 10 offensive rating, I know, at least through the three-quarter mark of the season. However, right after that, March happened, and that's what pulled them out of it. And then, despite the fact that they were absolutely explosive in April, it was was only a five-game sample size, of which one was a meaningless Orlando Magic game. So, it wasn't enough to bring them back up to the top 10, unfortunately. Overall, though, I do still think this is a very efficient, very kind of egalitarian-style offense uh, that will thrive in the playoffs. So, like, for example, this is a team that is fifth in assist percentage, eighth in assist per games. They love to pass the ball. They set each other up well. They know each other's kind of tendencies, things like that. And, I mean, that, that gets reflected right there just in how many of their plays end in assists. The biggest benefit of that, of course, being getting good, efficient shots and then hitting those shots as well. The Heat, third in true shooting percentage, which, again, it takes into account, obviously, your three-point shooting and your free-throw shooting. But if you just want to look at the twos and threes, fifth in effective field goal percentage. Uh, so pretty much like it doesn't matter which of those efficiency metrics you want to use. They are one of the best efficiency shooting teams in the league. Because a lot of it is, again, just hitting each other in good spots. On cuts, or open threes, or lobs, or getting op- you know setting screens so that someone can get a floater, or mid-range pull-up. However, whatever like they want to get to, they help each other get to those spots and set each other up well, which is how they end up finishing so efficiently. Uh, in terms of like the three-point shooting, it especially stands out for our team, which is good when you live in the era of three-point shooting. So, though the Heat are 14th in three-point attempts, they don't quite take the highest volume. You know, still middle of the pack's not too bad. They are, like, pretty 
handily the number one team in the league in terms of three-point percentage, which, again, is useful because that's how you keep the floor spaced out for Jimmy and Bam, which is something that was really leaned into during that six-game win streak and I think is the blueprint for efficient offense for the Heat going into the playoffs. But if there's one thing that is a big flaw, besides like if the threes aren't dropping, uh, it's turnovers for Miami. They finished 28th in turnovers per game, which was a big contributor to why they were 19th in opponent points off turnovers, just for the fact that they were just giving opponents so many of those opportunities. So if the Heat could really clean that part of their game up, then that's going to help to increase the efficiency of their offense even further. While, of course, giving their defense you know, a little bit, a little bit more of a breather. Speaking of, though, the defensive end is obviously where the Heat shine. That, that's the end that they shine on the most. So, like I mentioned, fourth in defensive rating. And the defensive philosophy, I think, may best be summed up as along the lines of just force bad shots or force bad shooters to shoot. So, like, for example, the Heat finished 27th in opponent three-point attempts per game. They were letting opponents jack up tons of threes, which you would think it's like, no, that's the last thing you want to do. But the reason why that ended up happening is because of their ability to kind of funnel those three-point attempts towards bad shooters on the roster. Like, kind of just, hey, we're going to leave you open, and if you beat us, beat us. Fortunately for the Miami Heat, most of the time they couldn't beat them. And that's how, despite giving up 27th and op- being 27th in opponent three-point attempts, they were second in opponent three-point percentage. So they held opponents to the second-worst three-point shooting in the league. Kind of to, to rephrase. So, yeah, kind of an unorthodox style to it, but effective nonetheless. And then on top of the way that they handled three-point shooting, they also did a, an even better job of just preventing anything going on within the paint. The number one defense and opponent points in the paint. So, if you're locking down the paint and only bad shooters are shooting from three and everything else is just whatever you can pull out of the mid-range, you kind of see why Miami ended up with ended up being fourth in opponent field goal percentage. Like, they just got every opponent they went up against into bad shooting. And then once they got them into those bad shots finishing ninth in defensive rebound percentage to finish off the possession and then get back on offense. Or if not getting the rebound, getting a turnover instead. Fifth in opponent turnovers per game. A lot of that, you know, being out, out on the perimeter or picking up charges. They were first in charges by an absolute mile. Like the actual number, Miami drew 111 charges this season. Second place was the Houston Rockets at 64 so almost doubling them, but just to say that this is a really nasty defense that I think is going to shine even more as the playoffs go on. Like Miami has a stake to say they have the best defense in the playoffs this year. All credit to the Boston Celtics, who their defense is legit, but I also legitimately think Miami's is up there. So offense, defense, all year long, Miami. I- I would say prove themselves elite. It would have been nice to finish top 10 in offensive rating, but I think taking into consideration what happened in the March, they still should have been a top 10 offense if everything had gone normal. 
So the other thing I wanted to look at as the regular season is finished up is any regular season awards that he players could be up for. First up, MVP, and yeah, no, I don't think anybody in the Heat has a chance at all of winning MVP. If we wanted to look at maybe like just team MVP for, for who it would be, uh, I would still have to go with Jimmy Butler, but I would have Bam Adebayo as a close second. Just It seems when the Heat were looking at their best, which again was during that six-game win streak uh, not too long ago, was when they had Jimmy Butler looking his best getting him out in space, and then just letting him attack. Meanwhile, Bam is everything for Miami on the defensive end. He still has those self-imposed limitations on the offensive end, but like the aggression issues. Though, if he sheds that, I could see him being Miami's most valuable player as early as next year. As for Rookie of the Year, um, also nobody for the Heat, because the only rookie that they have was Amir Yurtseven, who I... I was impressed with his stint that happened in December, a little less impressed with the the later times that he came out. I think at that point, like, the league had enough information to scout him out, and so obviously there's no improvements that need to be made. But for the most part, impressed with Yurt. Just he's not going to win Rookie of the Year. Uh, after that, most improved player, also really nobody for the Heat. Um, in terms of, like, internally who was their most improved player, I'd say Tyler Hero because... After last year's playoffs, I was admittedly a little concerned how he would look the following year, whether he would bounce back or whether what we saw was going to be the norm going forward. And he beyond bounced back. He got himself physically in better shape and came back as arguably Miami's best scorer. He, he's definitely the best scorer in terms of being able to score on all three levels which is something Miami absolutely needs in their playoff run. So I gave him, for the Heat's most improved player. Uh, in terms of lead six man of the year, this one actually will go to a Heat player, and I say will, because Tyler Hero is the absolute favor. I am not here for any of the Kevin Love bullshit. No, this is Tyler Hero's award. The only reason why anybody would argue otherwise is that they don't watch Miami play, which I think is pretty possible considering one there's even a discussion of Kevin Love and two there's so little recognition for Miami in other areas like defensive player of the year or coach of the year but yeah six man of the year that should be Tyler Hero that should be I would say arguably the most certain award out of any NBA regular season award but after six man of the year defensive player of the year and for this I do think Bam Adebayo has a legitimate chance, like he's a contender for it. The biggest problem, actually I would say the only problem in for Bam is that he's only played 56 games. So he missed a really big chunk of the season in December, January, some some other ones here and there. But 26 ga- missed games is a lot, and I get that. For for some people, they're they're going to say, hey, you missed that many games, I have to count that heavily against you. For other people, it would be like, you know what, you missed a lot of games, but I watched the film, and you were just obliterating people. It did not matter who was thrown at you. You were obliterating them in the 56 that you did play. So I'm going to count that more. That is a subjective thing. Personally, I'm looking at the field, and like a Jared Jackson Jr. or Rudy Gobert, 
And, yeah, against that competition, I'd say, yeah, even despite the game's missed, BAM Defensive Player of the Year. But I'm obviously biased. Continuing on that trend, Coach of the Year, which, yeah, I don't know how you don't have Eric Spolstra at the very least top three. Uh, the only other ones I would consider Taylor Jenkins from Memphis and Monty Williams for Phoenix. I would still put Spolstra at the two spot. The only one that I would that I would take over him would be Monty Williams, who just the Phoenix Suns dealt with injury. They dealt with Chris Paul out for several weeks, and they just kept rolling. Like the the only thing that I had Spolstra over Williams earlier on the season was that Spolstra had dealt with more adversity in terms of what happened with, in December, but the Suns also dealt with that similar type of adversity with Chris Paul going down, and yet they just kept going with it. So, yeah, I I, I got to give my tats off to Williams. I think if I was trying to be unbiased, I would put Williams there, but me being biased, please, come on. Eric Spolster is one of the greatest coaches of all time, and he needs a Coach of the Year award. Lastly, there's All-NBA, which I think Jimmy Butler has a good case as a forward, just as, you know, somebody needs to represent the number one team in the East. And Jimmy Butler still had a really great year, still led the team in scoring, still did everything on both ends of the floor, was still the leader of the team. And also the forward spots, especially when you get to third team, are a little, you know, weak. Like, I was looking at it, and I think I would end up having LeBron James on the third team, or maybe switch him out for Pascal Siakam for the Raptors. But... I think there is a good spot there for Jimmy Butler. Maybe Bam Adebayo is a long shot, but he would have to beat out like Rudy Gobert and Carl Anthony Towns for that. Then lastly, all defense. I mean, Bam Adebayo should at the very least be a lock for all defense. And the only other one I think of, maybe Jimmy Butler like on his second team. So that'll wrap up what I wanted to talk about in terms of just looking at the Heat's regular season. And now we look ahead to the playoffs. So first up, just to mention real quick, P.J. Tucker in a practice uh, the other day said that he would be ready to go for the playoffs. So that should mean that Miami has their full roster ready to go for game one. As a reminder, the Heat will play one of the Cavs or the Hawks. The way that it will work is the Cavs host the Hawks on Friday. The winner will take on the Heat Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Unfortunately, due to my work schedule, I won't be able to record a pod like Friday or Saturday. So that's why I'm just going to go ahead and release out kind of the preview now. I'll do one for both the Cavs and the Hawks. And yeah, obviously, one will just be a fun exercise and the other will be the actual preview, I guess. Starting off with the Cavs. I think this actually would be the one of the two would be the more favorable matchup for Miami especially if Jared Allen ends up, you know, either being out longer or is limited because of the broken finger that he suffered. So like Miami, the Cavs are also a pretty slow-paced team. They finished 26th in the league, so it's not like they're going to try to play at a pace that the Heat aren't unfamiliar with. The offensive end for the Cavs is pretty bad. They finished 20th in offensive rating, a big part of that. They finished 22nd in three-point attempts, so they were not taking a lot of threes. And of the ones that they were taking, they were only finished 15th in three-point percentage. So, yeah, this is not a not a very great spacing team, which kind of makes sense. They went with more of a heavy twin towers or triple towers lineup. Like, Jared Allen and Evan Mobley 
aren't quite floor space. There's in a similar way to the Heat. However, in the Heat's case, the rest of their roster are all really great three-point shooters. While for the Cavs, the only one that they legitimately have, I'd say, is Darius Garland. So for further offense, that is the biggest thing that has to be stopped is Darius Garland. He averaged 21.7 points, 3.3 rebounds, 8.6 assists this season on 46.2 from the field, 38.3 from three, and 89.2 from the line. So kind of starting to get close to like 50-40-90 shooting splits. So yeah, that dude is legit and can set up his teammates well. So for the Heat, I think one of the big things that they will need to just zone in on is doing everything they can to limit what Darius Garland can do. Whether that means maybe trapping him early and just getting the ball out of his hands and or like early on in their sets, or throwing a bunch of defenders at him like Caleb Martin, Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, and you know switching out on him and making his life hell out on the perimeter. Because if you stop Garland, a 20th rated offense is going to get even worse. And another area Miami could exploit in this offense, the Cavs have an extremely high turnover percentage, 27th in the league. So lean into that and try to see if you can find extra opportunities. Overall, I don't expect Miami's defense to have any problems with the Cavs offense. It's mainly the other end where I start to have my concerns because the Cavs make their bones on the defensive end, finishing fifth in defensive rating just behind Miami. And yes, uh, part of what made their defense so bad was having Jared Allen, but he was out for a good bit and they did not completely collapse without him. In large part due to Evan Mobley, who I kind of view as in the same prototype as a Bam Adebayo. Like, this dude looks like he could be defensive player of the year candidate for several years. But looking a little bit more into the defense, they are really good at limiting threes or seventh and opponent three-point attempts per game. While the conversion, kind of in the middle, they finished 17th and opponent three-point percentage. So I do think the shots Miami does get will be good quality and they'll be able to knock them down. The big thing, I think, is that they're going to try to spread out and focus on just limiting three-point attempts at all and close out to, to any potential shooters. Which, you know, there are ways that you can exploit that. So, like, for example, if they're playing out so much more on the perimeter, you can take advantage of more space inside to box out and grab offensive rebounds. Or if they close out extremely hard, obviously you blow by, go inside, either drive and kick or finish at the rim. Or ideally, you take advantage of the turnovers that you're hopefully generating on the other end to lead into easy offensive buckets, which is something that can be taken advantage of since the Cavs finished 27th in opponent points off of turnovers. Overall, I think the Cavs' defense is going to be a good test of Miami's, you know, kind of revamped offense that they've that they've leaned into in that six-game winning streak. So if that all clicks, then I, I, they'll be able to score well enough. And then obviously the defensive end for, for Miami against the Cavs offense should not be, I don't think will be any concern at all. As for potential X-Factors in this series, for the Cavs, it's definitely Jared Allen. Does he come back? When he does, what does he look like? That is everything for the Cavs. I think regardless, like even if he does come back and is at 100%, the Heat win in six just because what the Cavs do is a little gimmicky. I think it could be game planned out in the playoffs, especially by somebody like Eric Spolstra. 
And yeah, that's the best case scenario. The worst case, obviously, being he doesn't show up at all, and then it, this could be more of a sweep for the Heat. Um, X factors for the Heat for their end. Uh, I actually put down the Bam Hero, like the Bam Lowry two man games, mainly just two man games involving Bam, because one of the things that kind of really stood out uh, in watching the Nets play the Cavs was how they were kind of able to pull. Cavs defenders out to the perimeter. Granted, using Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, so the Heat may have to use somebody like a Kyle Lowry or Tyler Hero if one of them's like really going off to get that same level of respect. But just mainly the idea of can you pull them out that far and then let Bam go to work more so inside, or ideally be aggressive and take it straight to the rim for a dunk or a foul or something like that to see. See what can be emulated from that Nets-Cavs game where the Nets were just picking apart the Cavs down the stretch. And do that with Bam instead of Bruce Brown. But yeah, taking a step back and looking over the series as full, I'd say this ends in four, maybe a gentleman sweep five. Because the Cavs, while a great story, just have not had the health down the stretch. Though even with the health... I think Miami's tapped into something a little bit at a higher level than what the Cavs are currently. The other potential playoff matchup for the Miami Heat will be the Atlanta Hawks, which, in my opinion, a little bit more dangerous team because, like, at least with the Cavs, you have a team that is not experienced with the playoffs, with the Hawks, though I do think their run gets a little bit overblown because they were going up against the fraudulent New York Knicks teams. And then, you know, the Philadelphia 76ers have their own internal combustion problems. Uh, they did get to the Eastern Conference Finals. I just think that their pathway there isn't to be so celebrated. But they still have that experience nonetheless, and therefore present, the I think, the tougher matchup between the Cavs and the Hawks. In looking at stats on the Hawks, so they do play at a slightly faster place in the Heat, 20th, but I don't think that's anything too bad. Unlike the Cavs, um, the problem with the Hawks is is like the exact opposite. It's about defending this team because they finished second in offensive rating, in large part due to Trey Young, who I will give credit to for the offensive end. I mean, the guy averaged 28.4 points, 3.7 rebounds, 9.7 assists on 46 from the field, 38.2 from three, 90.4, so... Kind of like Garland, knocking on the door 50-40-90. He's a one-man offense almost in and of himself and does a good job of setting up his teammates as well. And the way that works is, like Miami, they have a lot of really good three-point shooters. So while they don't take the highest uh, amount of attempts, 18th and three-point attempts, kind of like Miami, they're really efficient with those shots. They finish second in three-point percentage. Or if you try to stay out on the shooters and try to cover Trey Young and let the roller get to the rim, they have pretty good rollers in either Clint Capella or Okongwu. I'm hoping I'm saying that name right. But just to say that like they have lob threats as well, which goes to why Trey Young averages almost 10 assists a game. But I think that in and of itself reveals the way that you defend Atlanta, which is to limit Young's ability as a playmaker. Like, if he wants to try and go up against Bam Adebayo or Caleb Martin or Kyle Lowry and get 35 every night, cool. Go for it, dude. Seriously. 100%. Because at that point, the offense will not be as efficient for the Hawks. 
And the only way the Hawks are winning a game against Miami is with efficient offense. Because on the defensive end, yeah, it ain't happening there. The Hawks finished 26 in defensive rating. So, yeah, if the Cavs would have been a good test for Miami's playoff offense, uh, this one definitely will not be. If anything, it should be a cakewalk for Miami's offense. The Hawks, they do a decent job of limiting threes. They're 17th in opponent three-point attempts per game. But they give up a considerable amount. They're 25th in opponent three-point percentage. And given that the Heat shoot first, they should crush the Hawks from three all series. Or if not there, then in the paint as well. Uh, the Hawks, 19th in opponent points in the paint, which, considering Miami has Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo, is something that they could definitely exploit. But really, what I think it comes down to on the offensive end for Miami is involving Trey Young. Because as much... As Cherry Young contributes on the offensive end, that cannot be taken away. He takes back almost as much on the defensive end by just being abysmally terrible. So, yeah, whoever he's guarding, bring them out and have them set up screens and try to get Trey Young switched out onto the perimeter and then take advantage of him out there to not only wear him down in terms of energy, but also to like force rotations and force the defense to scramble in response to cover up for him. Because, yeah, think about it, right? Like, the more you involve Trey Young on the defensive end, the more energy he expends than on the offensive end, so long as you're staying on anybody that he passes to and forcing him to do the work there as well. That's going to be very tough to keep up for a game, let alone, you know, four or five game series. But, yeah, the offensive end for Miami shouldn't be any problem. Against the Hawks' defense should not be any problem at all. In terms of X-factors between these teams, for the Hawks, it's a little bit of a similar situation. They have a one of their best players, John Collins. His size is kind of unknown, mainly because he's dealing with injuries in his fingers and his foot. However, if he is back, it does give the Hawks, you know, not only a solid defender, but also another great three-point shooter, that could help boost their offense. And then for the Heat, I really think it's about Bam owning the center matchup. Like, Clint Capella is a solid center, but Bam Adebayo should be able to obliterate him on both ends of the floor. Though I say that, and Bam, I do think, will end up switching out on the perimeter a lot, especially against, like, Trey Young. But whenever he can, own the center matchup. Because if Clint Capella can't guard Bam, then nobody on the Hawks can. Zooming out to the series as a whole now, I would say that this is a series that ends, feel pretty confident saying in five. Just because Trey Young, I would say, has one game where he just absolutely goes off and at least steals a game. He's that good offensively that it, that I think it'll happen at least once in a playoff series. But outside of that, this should be pretty much like a gentleman's sweep. So with that all out of the way, what the plan going forward next is, again, Game 1 will be Sunday, uh, at, starting at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, and then I will record kind of a reaction pod to that sometime late Sunday so that it will be out Monday morning, with the goal being to at least, even if it's only like 10 to 15 minute long, doing game recaps for every single game as we go throughout the playoffs. But that will be all for this episode. Please be sure to follow the pod at Heaters Heating on Twitter or myself at KBR Heat Nation. Also check out the other great pods we have at OTG Basketball on Twitter. I'll be back Monday morning. So regardless of who we have, let's win game one. Have a good one, Heat Nation.